Hello and welcome to the Trapping Today podcast. I am your host, Jeremiah Wood. Thanks so much for listening in. It's great to have you guys here. Great to be here. It is another beautiful spring day in northern Maine. The grass is growing uh, on the farm here. Cows are having calves. We are three quarters of the way through calving season and have had no issues whatsoever. So that's a good um, change for the better. And uh, just working on getting firewood in. It's that time of year. We had a record cold winter and lots of lots of snow and burned through a whole po- bunch of wood. Almost ran out of firewood last winter. So uh, starting early this year to make sure that doesn't happen again. So a uh, lo- good time to get a bunch of work done. Um, the Trapping Today podcast is brought to you by Cotts Brothers Lures. K-A-A-T-Z-B-R-O-S dot com. Kyle and Kellen Cotts have a trapping supply business in Savannah, Illinois. They have uh, that website, Cotts Bros. You can find just about everything that you need to get started on the trap line. They've got great prices, excellent service, and uh, just all all kinds of different products, books, DVDs. They make a whole line of baits and lures. And uh, you're going to hear more from Kyle in tonight's episode. Really excited about that. And uh, actually excited for you Southern Trappers because um, I got a little something for you in tonight's episode. We're going to talk about trapping in Alabama and Mississippi. So uh, I don't have a lot of experience there. So I thought it would be a great opportunity to talk about Kyle's uh, trapping experience down in those Southern states and kind of uh, give you guys a little something that's closer to home. Um, the Trapping Tape Podcast is also brought to you by Fur Harvesters Auction. Uh, fur Harvesters, where the world comes to buy wild fur. This is an auction house run by Trappers for Trappers and uh, located in North Bay, Ontario, Canada. The Fur Harvesters Auction uh, Spring Sale is coming up this as you listen to this it's going to be if you listen to this when it comes out uh, it's going to be next weekend so uh, May 24th and 25th there's going to be a sale uh, in North Bay so if you've uh, shipped fur with fur harvesters uh, this is uh, this is the last sale of the season um, 24th, they're going to sell uh, Timberwolf, Wolverine, Black Bear, Grizzly Bear, Polar Bear, Seal, Ermine, Squirrel, Skunk, Possum, and Badger. So kind of the, <clears throat> some people call that the zoo, um, just a variety of different species. They're not going to have much uh, in quantity of any of those. They're kind of a little bit of a unique, sort of unique fur items. And then uh, the, the big part of the sale starts at 8 a.m. on the 25th. And that's going to be beaver, otter, fisher, lynx, muskrat, coon, mink, coyote, red fox, uh, and and a few uh, ranch fox as well. So um, and actually, they're they're the marten and bobcat are going to be sold in Helsinki, Finland, in June. Uh, that's kind of going to be part of a a separate sale. Uh, it's not going to be a full auction. Um, but this is pretty much the time when uh, most of that fur is going to sell. Um, uh, for the se- the remainder of the season, uh, so hopefully we we saw a little bit of an an uptick in prices in in the the last auction. Of course, we're still kind of at the low in the fur market, but I think we've hit a bottom, and 
hopefully we'll begin to see a little bit of improvement. It'll be interesting to follow the auction uh, as it goes on and, and kind of get an idea of where where the prices are going to be. Uh, the auction actually is it's really convenient now. You can actually listen to it live on the website. Um, and it, it maybe takes a little bit of getting used to, but uh, if you, you have fur there and you have an account, just log in. Uh, even if you don't have an account, you, you, there should be a link that will pop up during the auction that you can click on and you can listen to it as it's going on. So sometimes it gets a little bit confusing listening to those, but it is it it can be very informative and interesting. It, to me, what what I learned the most about that is listening to the live auction is kind of the mood of the the auctioneers and the mood of the the buyers, and you get an idea of whether there's uh, generally a lot of demand for fur or very little demand, and when the room is moving and excited you you could tell the last couple of auctions that's when they were selling coyotes and bobcats uh, the auctioneer was fired up the all the people were bidding there was all kinds of commotion and and noise in the room uh, that's a good thing for fur prices uh, when when something like beaver was selling uh, not so much it was very quiet and the auctioneer was the only one talking and he was going through a lot of lots without selling very many of them so uh, uh, listening live uh, can be interesting. Uh, but anyway, Fur Harvesters has depots all over North America, U.S. and Canada. There's probably one near you. Go to furharvesters.com and you can uh, search for uh, pickup locations or places to ship your fur. Usually you should be within, uh, if, you, if you're in a fur producing area, you should be within an hour or two of, of one of these Fur Harvesters pickup locations. And you can also call them at 705-495-4688. That's furharvesters.com. All right, so let's get into tonight's episode. We're going to talk southern trapping. Um, really excited to have Kyle on again, and, and hopefully uh, we'll have Kyle for a couple more episodes to talk about a few other topics, and uh, hope you enjoy. Kyle Cotts from Cotts Brothers Lures. Thanks for coming back. Join us again. Thanks for having me again. All right, so we should clarify first that uh, you are not Kyle Cotts, the ginseng or root digging extraordinaire. Correct. <laughs> Far from it. <laughs> we had a listener uh, ask about uh, about roots and root digging, and and I guess you've done a little bit of it, but uh, but really not not anything recently. Yeah, that, that one one year, I, I Scott Welch was here for our spring open house, and uh, right here behind the shop, he Scott's pretty knowledgeable on different roots, and he pointed out uh, purple trillium and bloodroot, and uh, I said, well, do they have value? And he's like, well, yeah, you know, the, at that time, bloodroot was like $8 a pound, and, and the best root or purple trillium was like $1.50 a pound, so I... Every day after we get done or I had some time, I just go down there and start digging these roots and I laid them all to dry. And, and by the time I was done, you know, I did that for a couple of weeks and I remember exactly weights, but I, I had probably eight or 10 pounds of each and it really didn't offset the shipping to send them to, to get, I mean, I would have lost money just shipping them to, to sell. So <laughs> that kind of, kind of, I have not dug a root since and don't intend to again. <laughs> hey, that sounds a little bit like fur prices and trapping. 
Yeah, it's just it's just that I, I'm more passionate about trapping and, and root digging is something like gardening that I just I don't really get into. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, so I'm excited about today because uh, I'm not a southern trapper. I've never trapped down south, and I get emails from guys that listen to the podcast, and, uh, you know, they like hearing the Martin and Fisher stuff and the northern trapping, uh, but I think it's nice for people to hear a little bit about uh, something they can relate to every once in a while. So, uh, what do you sure. say we talk a little bit about the trapping that you've done in a couple southern states? Okay. You, um, I you spent... went to uh, what Mississippi and Alabama? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I trapped trapped in Alabama two seasons, and uh, let's see, the winter of '08 and the winter of '09, and then I trapped in Mississippi. Uh, let me think here. Um, let's see, January 2000, and then 2001, 2002, and then again in 2000, I skipped a year and then went back in 2004. So I was in uh, Mississippi four different times, Alabama, two, two different winters. Nice. Uh, what what was the impetus to go down and trap in the south? Well, it was kind of, when we're talking about Iowa, I was, you know, I was hyper-focused on, on catching raccoons and then i i think the person that i got to know who was an eye trapper dale billingsley and dale at the time trapped in arkansas and i'd be at conventions and i'd, I'd see dale's photo album from arkansas and he'd have bobcats and gray fox and otter and and, and beaver and just a variety of, of animals and i just drawn to that and i got to got to uh uh just kind of thinking about that more and more and and I like the idea of, hey, I can go down there and trap in January and February when Illinois seasons are closed okay. and or were froze up. Uh, and it was kind of it was kind of a lull where I, I was done trapping for the fall and I couldn't really spring beaver trap yet. So there was some time there that I could fill. And, you know, at the time I didn't have much else to do. So yeah. I, uh, I was really drawn to that aspect of it, too. Like, hey, I could run down there and trap and make a little extra money too. Um, so at that time, uh, I forget which convention I was at. And, um, there's a guy by the name of George Hurst and George was trying to get Northern trappers to come to Mississippi and trap as part of a, a Turkey management program, more or okay. less. He wanted to kill off all the predators so the turkeys could rebound. Well, we could have a whole podcast about the political um, things. I I mean, I'd be quick to say me and George Hurst, uh, after the initial meeting and getting down there, I did not get along well with him at all. Uh, I, I, I didn't find him to be the most uh, truthful person. <laughs> and I also found that uh, the example... I got to trapping down in Mississippi. I got I got to know a lot of Mississippi trappers and Alabama trappers both. Mm-hmm. And I think of a conversation I had with a with uh, a guy from Mississippi, and he said, "Kyle, he said we got no problem with you coming down and trapping, but the problem comes in." He said, "For years we've been selling live coyotes for 150 to 300 dollars." And George brought everybody in and said, you can sell live coyotes for 75 or 100 bucks. So you had 
Mississippi trappers that were making a big part of their livelihood selling 100, 200 coyotes a year yep. for $300. And inadvertently, they were kind of I didn't cut. know that. Yeah, yeah. And so it really, it hurt the fellow. It, by, by me going down there and doing that unintentionally, I really hurt some really good people that, I mean, I call friends now. And, you know, they, they were understanding of it. But, but I took that up with George then right away, and I, I kind of blew up at him and, and, and uh, kind of I, I was I, I really felt bad about that, and I totally put the blame on George that, hey, you know, there was no need to do that. Um, if, if you had worked with, and that was the other thing too, is he, he recruited a lot of non-residents and all he would have had to do is work with the local trappers some too, so that everybody was on the same page. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I think, uh, there was, there was some politicking or something there behind the scenes with George that I'm not privy to, but that was, a uh, kind of a learning experience. I was kind of young and I, I still feel bad about that because there's some, Mississippi and Alabama trappers that were making really good money and relying on that income. And then after this program took off and coyotes could be bought for 75 instead of 300, I mean, that's a, a significant hit to the pocketbook for a lot of those trappers that really were relying and needing that money because at the time, you know, southern fur prices. You're talking coon at a buck fifty-two dollars, beaver at about five bucks. You know, bob bob otter were strong. Bobcats are probably thirty-five, forty dollars. But you know, as a trapper in the south, they really relied on that live market coyote deal. And um, so that was, like I say, that could be a whole podcast in itself. The politics and some of the legalities and and how that all unfolded. Um, but maybe that the, was a the, the take home lesson there would be if it sounds too good to be true it probably is exactly <laughs> yeah you hit the nail on the head um outside of that when i was down there it was a blast yeah. <laughs> um, you know so but that was one of the things that after the fact um you realize like i i i guess i i, I really i felt bad um when I kind of realized what was going on and, and, uh, how that all unfolded. I, I definitely felt bad and I still feel bad because like I say, if, if that hadn't happened, a lot of those Mississippi guys 20 years later would still be selling coyotes for two, you know, two or $300 probably. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's hard it's, to say, a, you know, there's so many different things yeah, in, in right. local guys could have gone in and undercut it each other too. You know I mean? right right the market has funny ways of kind of figuring things out like that (laughs) yeah exactly well that's that's a very good point for sure so so this guy got you down there and but when you got down there you kind of had to pivot a little bit and figure things out on your own yeah so the first year um Dave Pluger and I went down together as partners and and we were really fired up I Dave is a really knowledgeable trapper um, you know, like I mentioned him on the last podcast, mm-hmm. as far as raccoons go, he's just, he's top notch, very good water trapper. And at the time, um, Dave had never really done a whole lot of, uh, predator trapping. He had snared fox and coyotes, but not so much with footholds. And so, um, 
we both were real excited. I think Dave was looking forward to the Predator um, potential uh, just because we knew we were going to have access to coyotes, and we were thinking, hoping for gray fox and uh, and bobcats, which bobcats were the – bobcats and otter at the time, um, neither Illinois nor Iowa had an otter season. So, mm-hmm. you know, otter and – we had both caught incidental otter, but being able to actually skin otter and – and trap bobcats that's you know the whole ride down we kind of talked about that and we were you know we we didn't necessarily like set goals as to how many we wanted to catch because we were going to an area we have never seen before yeah um i talked to the landowner on the phone and it was basically turn left here go to the t in the road make another left and come down and you'll see my tan truck parked at my house <laughs> okay, so when you went down when you went down you had one landowner lined up and that was where yeah, well, you were going to trap? Or? It was basically, there was two two landowners. And that was another difference is down there, this landowner owned a lot of different properties. He was okay. a, a huge catfish farmer. Um, so, I mean, he he had, uh, I mean, he had a lot of employees um, that worked on the catfish farm. He had employees that did the cotton planting, harvesting. Um, he, he was kind of a, um, that particular catfish from, I, I talked to him one day about it and he said a lot of the catfish they raised got sold to Long John Silvers. Okay. And, um, that the main property where we stayed that first year on the catfish pond, there was, uh, there was 97, 100 acre catfish ponds wow. and there's tim- timber and cotton fields and, and land around that also. And then he had uh, property. We were right on the border of the Delta and the Hill country. So you had basically two whole different style, uh, two whole different habitats. And, um, there was this guy and he had a, a business associate also, um, that we, the two of them were kind of in partners on some properties and some investments. So between the two of them, we had like five or six different places. And, and I mean, they range from, from, you know, 15,000 acre parcels to 1500 acre parcels. Um, and there was a few places mixed in. And then towards the end, we picked up new places. Like we kind of mentioned before, it was once people found out we were down there, we and, and at that point too, it was so early in that in George Hurst program that there wasn't a tremendous amount of non-residents yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, there was there was endless. Um, it seemed like every day um, we got to know the guy that managed the catfish pond, and and his name was Greg. And Greg was like a tremendous asset because he knew the property so. He, he had he knew the properties in and out and he was a very knowledgeable outdoorsman by the end of the stay he had he was starting to set traps and stuff himself um and i i don't i haven't talked to him in years now but i mean for a while there he started trapping men um he was a great asset uh to as far as he he knew things as far as uh what was where and and water levels and really um the first day he drove us around the first morning, uh, Greg took us for a drive and we got back from that drive and Dave and I looked at each other and we're like, where do we even start? 
(laughs) We were so turned around and twisted. He drove us down the levee along a river and then back through catfish ponds and around. And after an hour, we came out right back at the trailer where we stayed. And it's like, how did we get here? I thought we were going in a straight line. (laughs) You know, it was just, so, so that was a big challenge. So, so that first, you know, that first day, Dave and I set out down this main levee and I think it got to be about lunchtime and we met up with the landowner and he said, Hey, I've got to run up to the, the, I think he called it the hill country. And, um, so he showed us that property. And when we got up there, it was like, now nah, we're going to catch some bobcats. And we did that property. Um, over the times I've tra- I trapped up there, it was, there was some just really sweet bobcat locations. Um, they had, it was timber mixed with that had some replanted areas uh, and some kind of not really meadows, but where the grass would be like waist high. Yep. And through all this, they had four wheeler trails running to all their deer stands okay. and a tremendous rabbit population. So, I mean, it was just everything a bobcat needed. was there. And, and you guys that had was, this place to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that we set that for, Again, I have, it's been a while, but uh, I know we were all fired up about, man, if we can each catch a couple of bob, if we could each catch a bobcat here, it would be like, that would be awesome. Well, the very first check I had a bobcat and I think Dave had caught an otter. And so <laughs> the next check, like by the end of the first week, we had like six cats and seven otter or nice. something like that. Like, so it was just like immediate, like we gained, uh, pretty quick we gained gained some confidence and and we also learned things like you know we were we were making some pocket sets and trying to catch some raccoons and we got to where we were like drowning ourselves in in coon and you know we'd have trap all day and we'd have we didn't have any freezer space so i mean we had to skin stretch and and dry everything as we caught it and i mean when you're gone until right at supper time and you come home and you have 10 beaver, 10 coon, uh, you know, a couple, uh, a couple bobcats. At this point we hadn't sold any live coyotes, so we would skin them and a couple otter. Uh, and we were catching possums and skunks too. So, I mean, we, and we skinned everything and it was like, man, it's 1230 at night. And so we started by the end, I think we started looking at it as we're not going to worry about catching the coon because they're worth $2. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, we need to focus more on otter. And, and so we kind of started, we really learned as we went. And uh, also it was kind of the ongoing task of, of, well, here's another property to trap. Here's another property to trap. And then each one was kind of a new, uh, you know, we'd, we'd get done checking and it seemed like not every day, but, uh, you know, every fourth or fifth day it was like hey we're going to take you to this property and take you to this property so we started kind of like pulling our moving traps around and at that point it was like instead of having this 220 set for a two dollar coon we got to we got to pull all these 220s and take them with us to this next place where there's crossovers you know coming out of the river into a catfish pond and and get these in and better otter locations so for uh, for you so, it was it, this was uh, they wanted you to catch just about anything for the most part. Yeah, see George Hurst program he wanted us to catch raccoons, skunks, coyotes, bobcats, 
uh, he didn't really care about the beaver. When we got there, the landowner said, "Don't." I remember his exact words, and he was he was kind of kicked back in his chair, put his hands on his head, and said, "You know," I said, "You guys just don't, you know, don't don't concern yourself about." Mr. George, you just, you know, we're, we're happy to have you here and, and catch all the beaver you can. Uh, you know, we don't like predators either. <laughs> so from that aspect, he, he, he was, he was really, uh, to him, he, he was active, um, in the kind of the same circles as George Hurst. And, and the landowner chap basically was like, you know, there's, we just want somebody here trapping because we have way too many of all these predators and beaver. Yeah. Like we just want, want it, the populations reduced. And he didn't really, um, he didn't really care what we caught. He was happy to have a few less beaver dams, a few less coon, a few less coyotes. Yeah. Uh, he, he just understood sound wildlife management essentially. And, and so he was really encouraging and basically opened the doors. And I, I know now people, uh, throughout the year, since I've been down there in 2004, I think every year since somebody has trapped that property, I've, I, I know a, a couple of different, um, uh, trappers that have have trapped there since. Yeah. That sounds like the perfect opportunity for a trapper to get into a place like that. Lots of land, a whole variety of different species, and the guy that just lets you go after it. Yeah, and, and that's the beauty of, of the South. I I uh, I would say, you know, 99.9% of the property that is owned in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Arkansas, Tennessee too, I would say, but the, the southeastern part of the United States, the land is really for the most part managed by hunters, um, people that are understand wildlife conservation and management and they want people there killing off predators, uh, controlling beaver populations. It's just understood. So the only, I think the only way a landowner in the Southeast will tell you, you can't trap here is because they already have somebody trapping there. Mm -hmm. Otherwise they want, they welcome you with open arms and, and want you to 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 uh, trap whatever you can, essentially. And so that was, I think that was kind of a little bit uh, encouraging because, like I'd mentioned, when I was in Iowa, starting in Iowa, I felt like I had to be secretive and not let people see where I was trapping. Yeah. And then when I went to Mississippi, it's like the opposite. Like, you basically want to advertise. Right. <laughs> because... Yeah. Everybody, everybody wants it. And, and most of the properties I went there, you know, like in Illinois, if, if you, if you trap a certain farm, like there may not be any water there. It may have a few good coyote locations and that's it. And then you may have the next farm that's got a Creek running through it and it's a great raccoon farm. And then you may have a next, next farm where, you know, there's some beaver on the river. Generally speaking, like in Mississippi, if you got permission on a property, most of the parcels are bigger. So a landowner would have a 2000 acre, uh, hunting club where they, where they, or, or a 2000 acre 
cotton plantation or, or much larger. I mean, 2,000 acres would be small for a cotton operation there in the area where I trapped. But any one of those permissions, the ecosystem seemed to be where you had all the fur bears there. Mm-hmm. You know, the cotton field edges, you would find bobcat and coyote locations, and, and there was always drainage ditches and, and things leading back to the river um, just to to keep the land in the best condition for their agricultural use. And naturally the beaver loved to build dams there. And then you've got anywhere there was, they'd planted a lot of corn to flood for hunting ducks, which was like coon heaven. I mean, we would see coon (laughs) in broad daylight there. Uh, So that was, that was a kind of culture shock where you have, you know, every spot it, it was, it's almost hard to manage because you know, you're trying to set predator traps and chest waders and you're sweating to death. And yeah. then, you know, you're trying to, trying to keep all your predator stuff and then have, you know, tall 330 stands and snares and uh, all this stuff in the truck at once. Plus, you're catching animals as you're doing this. It's really a challenge to stay organized that time. <laughs> oh, I was going to ask you that. Uh, it sounds like you were you get to a place and you'd scout a little bit, and then you'd, you'd go start setting traps. And it doesn't sound like you'd set a land line and a water line. It sounds like you'd make a stop and set according to the conditions, whether it was in water, land, trapping all at once. Exactly. Yeah, we we were. And, and like I say, at first we were just setting, you know, we Dave and I going down there that first year, I mean, we were coon trappers at heart. By the last year I trapped Mississippi, I didn't even pay attention to raccoons, essentially. I was looking primarily at bobcats and otter and even whatever. I was, the focus had changed to where I'm just going down to trap bobcats and otter, essentially, and I'll catch whatever beaver I run across. Yeah. Whereas that first year, Dave and I, I mean, we, we, we really focused on, you know, if we, I remember on the backside of the catfish ponds, there was a, uh, a flooded out spot where there was a colony of beaver and, and we would set, uh, we'd set three thirties in the cross in Mississippi. You could set three thirties on dry land. Um, so that was a little bit different than what we were used to, mm-hmm. but I mean, we'd set the crossovers and then we'd each hop in the pond there and make a, a, a caster mount set. And that brings me to another like different, thing that we weren't used to i'd never trapped anywhere where there were snakes or alligators or anything <laughs> that was hazardous to my health other than a snapping turtle um so yeah that this this particular location i just described where i got it in my head the last year i trapped there there was a washout kind of like a hole in the road and i was feel i was going to set a 330 there and i had a stick and i was poking around I was standing on the road. I was on dry ground, but the, you know you could see that the water was under the the road there. And I had a stick. I was poking around and prodding and trying to find out, you know, find where I was going to set this three thirty. And I, I eventually did set a couple three thirties. And then I uh, we later on we talked to Greg, the the manager. And th- this is the fourth year I was there. So by then I knew Greg pretty well. And I told him, I said, yeah, that's really, you know, Beaver really active there. And I said, yeah, I said, he's like, oh, oh be careful. He said, Mama Gator's <laughs> raising her whole family right in that hole in the road you were poking in. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I had a few, like, I had a few instances where it was like, I can remember 
another spot along the river there where it was uh, the second year I was down there. Uh, it was my brother and I, and my grandpa had come to come down. He drove down from Wisconsin to visit us and ride along for a couple of days. And uh, Kellen and grandpa were, Kellen was putting in a couple of coyote sets right at the levee. There was a little crossing there um, where we had caught coyotes before. So he was setting that. I had my waders on and I took off through the floodwaters there because there was a beaver channel I had set the previous year with Dave and caught like nine beaver in. So I I was walking to that channel and I was like, like oh, about half, you had to walk maybe a hundred yards through like ankle deep water. And then there was a channel that was like waist deep and it was just perfect for a, a tall 330 stand. And you know, you could, there was, it was a lot of flooded logs and stuff had drifted there so it was a real good easy spot where the beaver and otter be forced through uh 330 so i was walking along there and i i I was just about halfway probably and i saw there was a log you know about 10 feet over to my right and the log kind of floated underwater and there was ripples i'm like wait it just (laughs) i kind of caught it in my peripheral and i stopped and then i saw the two little eyes come up again or they weren't so little they were kind of big I'm like, ah, I'm out of here. <laughs> this is, I, I'm not, I, I don't need to set this chop that bad. And uh, so, and then we had another spot. Um, Dave and I had set the first year and uh, there was a levee uh, that controlled the water and there was a pond and there was on the backside, there was a, a just a cross, a burner cross out trail that went into a, uh, a big slough drainage that went into a river just ideal otter spot and and we did end up catching like five or six otter in that 330 and on the way out dave and i each made a couple caster mount sets and there were some other trails we set for otter but we were flopping around in the water there and and you know knelt down and and digging out excuse me digging out trap beds for our 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 caster mount sets and the next day we come and here's this big old alligator floating around there <laughs> and it's like it, it, just things like that that you know in illinois you don't have to worry about anything or pay or you really don't even have to pay attention to it yeah but so that was a little i wasn't necessarily afraid of the alligators but i definitely had them gave them a lot of respect i i think the cotton mouse bothered me more than the alligators because uh there was a lot more cotton mouse snakes than there was the alligators where i trapped uh, now I'll show my ignorance. Are there alligator hunters or alligator trappers there like there are in Louisiana? No, not in Mississippi or Alabama. Okay. okay. Yeah. That may have changed now, but at the time, uh, there, there was no seasons on alligators in, in either, either place. So they weren't scared, very afraid of you either. <laughs> necessarily no, yeah, not really <laughs> yeah um so so you you and dave uh probably put up some pretty good numbers there that first year especially when you weren't specializing you were just trying to stack up fur at first um yeah we that first year i mean i don't think we had any like record-breaking numbers of any one animal but we had a variety of everything i i think we caught it was like close to 70 coon uh uh, just a couple less beaver than raccoons. I think we had 21 or 22 otter and 21 or 22 bobcats. We were, I'd have to look back at my notes. Like I said, it's been a while or almost 20 years now. We were, it was almost dead equal with bobcat to otter. Uh, we had skunks. I think we had 
like close to 30 skunks we caught and I think we caught 14 or 15 coyotes and we we trapped for right at like 30 days okay so it, I mean, we, we were ha- we felt like like it was a successful trip um, because we had such a variety and and you know that first year down there was the first year of that program and in talking to a lot of other trappers um, we talked to guy you know I talked to guys that were like well we caught 200 beaver the month we were there um, and so it varied a lot I think we were kind of, a lot of the guys that I talked to that had produced big numbers of like beaver they were strictly trapping in the delta whereas we were in the hill country half the day uh basically and and all we caught in the hill country was bobcats that first year mm-hmm. um for some reason i never did catch a gray fox in mississippi um and i i don't know why i know some people that trapped within like 10 miles of where we were in the hill country and they caught grays every other day basically so it just one one of them odd things i guess but yeah um and no mink uh, there we, and, oh we did catch some mink we had we had one little area it was right behind the, the catfish farm office um and if you've ever watched any of jim spencer's videos where he shows like the mink have like burner trails along the creeks that's how this little area was and we set one tens and we caught oh i think 15 mink or so 15, 16 mink, and I, I still, the one mink I caught was just ginormous. I, I got a picture of me holding the thing, and I think that's still the biggest mink I've caught in my career. Really? And it was just that one little one little area. Um, we had some pocket sets, and we had 110 set and trails there, and we, the whole time I trapped in Mississippi, it was only that one spot I caught mink and yeah. caught quite a few of them. I was curious about that because I talked a while back with Chip Davis uh, from Expandapan Traps, who uh, is in Mississippi, and he was mentioning the they observe that the otter and mink don't seem to overlap very much there. So the places where they'll catch high numbers of otter, they won't catch very many mink, and uh, yeah, just I, pockets like that. That's a that's an interesting theory. Um, other places I've been are like that. Now I've also I've had bridges in Iowa where where I know the one bridge was always a real good mink bridge, and I caught otter there. Uh, incidentally, that I had to turn loose at the time, but there were places where they overlap. But I do think, for whatever reason, in the South, that uh, that is a fairly accurate statement. That uh, for whatever reason. Um, if it's just the prey bases are are similar or they're a little more protective of them, you know, obviously the otter is going to be the dominant of the, right. of the two yep. there, um, that, you know, for whatever reason, the otter just won't tolerate the mink. Yeah. So you left Mississippi that first year and you must have been like, oh man, I'm going to be, I'm going to be right back here next winter. Is that, was you basically just, uh, yeah, from the- yeah, per- yeah, pretty much. And and that second that second year, um, it worked out with Kellen's schedule. Um, he had started college and and he had decided he was not gonna be gonna take a break from that and he had planned on going to guide school in Montana that spring, so it basically opened up his schedule and it was like literally a week before that it was like, Well, come with me to Mississippi. So the second year Kellen and I went there. And, uh, it was champ the first year Dave and I lucked out. 
we had rain like one night. Mm-hmm. When Kellen and I went, it rained literally every single day. It was just brutal. Conditions. It sounds like you can really do that there. Yes, and 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 it's the norm. It was just like I remember Greg laughing uh, after the the second year. He laughed. He said. Yo, I spoiled that last year. He said, that was like drought. He's like, I've only seen that twice in my life. <laughs> and then, then he's like, this is this is what Mississippi's really like. And it was like, oh, my God. And we had, like, I remember one day we had straight line, 80-mile-per-hour winds. I mean, everything was so flooded out. We we ended up, it's like, well, what are we going to do today? We can't even, we can't even, like, some of the spots, there was, you know, probably eight to ten inches of water where we'd park the truck to unload the four wheeler. Jeez! And it's like we can't can't do anything with this, and it was still downpouring off and on. So I mean, we that second year when we left, we actually had some traps that were under like twelve feet of water that Greg ended up pulling for us after the fact. Um, it was it was brutal. We ended up. Our catch, numbers-wise, was about the same as the first year. Um, I think Kellen and I had, had about half as many coon and, and and a few less beaver, but I think our, our odd, our bobcat, I think we had actually caught a few more bobcats, and uh, about everything else we had caught about the same as the first year. Um, Kellen and I had picked up a couple new spots, and then also the second year, you know your way around, yeah. and that was that was the big difference. Um, there was a whole area of the catfish pond, a drainage ditch that, that I was unaware of until that second year. Um, so just a lot of things like that, um, familiarity with things. And, and, uh, we, like I say, we, we were dealt horrible weather conditions, but we caught almost as much as the first year, just because I knew my way around so much better. Yeah. So then how'd 2002 go? The following year, I went down just for two weeks, my grandpa and I, and the weather was cooperated pretty well. Um, and I actually, like coyotes, bobcat, otter, I think, uh, I mean, we're trying to remember, I think I caught, the first two years I went down for a month each time. This time I went down and had like 13, I think I had 13 checks and I'd caught like 12 otter, 12 bobcats, 10 coyotes roughly. And like 35 beaver, probably 30 coon. So I was more efficient in that two weeks time than I had been the first two years in, in the, in a full month. And then, the, I took a year off, and then that last year I trapped, I trapped with Tom and Tara Roach. Um, they had actually their own trap line not far from that area, and I think we trapped for like 10 days and and probably caught about the same as I did in that two weeks. Again, just knowing knowing your way around makes such a huge difference, and uh I, I'd have to go back and look at my notes, but I think that year we actually did fairly or really well on bobcats. Uh, I, I think it was dry. The weather was drier, which just makes all the difference. I, 
you know, being a predator trapper in the South, it's just so tough to battle the rain all the time. So I think, um, that's the biggest factor. I mean, the animals are always there, but, but, uh, when you're fighting mud all the time, that can be a real challenge. Mm, Yep. Absolutely. So, uh, that was it for Mississippi. Um, it, you just kind of moved on to other things. Yeah. I, well, I, I, I didn't necessarily lose interest in Mississippi, but my focus had changed a little bit to where I wanted to go out west and trap uh, uh, coyotes real bad. And I had gotten a dog, uh, the dingo, I got him in 2002, and that's why I didn't go to Mississippi. I took a year off from Mississippi because I was in New Mexico. Then I went back to Mississippi, and then I went back to New Mexico that following year. so it, New Mexico and Mississippi were kind of intertwined there a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, so overall, like your impression of Mississippi trapping, um, as far as like, uh, how it's different than, than Illinois, Iowa, um, uh, you know, the species, the regulations, the weather, uh, what are just some of your takeaways there? Yeah. I mean, the culture was, was big difference. Um, for me going to where you, you know, you got permission from one landowner and he owns so much property. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was again, magnified when I went to, to New Mexico and, you know, one permission in New Mexico would be like, like 20,000 uh, county in Illinois, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so that was a big culture shock. And then, um, the, the weather, no doubt was, was, you know, you, Guys that trap in the southeast part of the United States are really, really face uh, catastrophic conditions. Um, you know, here, a Midwestern trapper, you know, a creek might go up, a real heavy rain, a creek might go up a couple feet. I mean, we do have some rivers that fluctuate real heavy, might go up, but the creeks might go up a couple of feet. In Mississippi, you can literally have a river go up 20 feet overnight. I mean, it's just... The, the flooding um, is so drastic there and can be so drastic that you really have to pay attention to that. I mean, that's, that, that's a huge challenge there. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's really, it's next to impossible. Um, I know, you know, if you read a lot of trapping books and, and watch DVDs, people talk about backup plans and, and, you know, if the weather does this, you got to go to plan B. Well, literally in the Southeast, your plan B is, I can't trap in this. I mean, that's basically it. I mean, there's, it's, it's a definite, uh, uh, challenge and there's nothing you can really do about it when, when, uh, when your traps are under 20 feet of water. (laughs) So, uh, but the variety, the, that would be the negatives of it. Um, the positives, definitely the variety and the friendliness of the people, um, where we trapped, uh, there was, their workforce was, was mostly Mexicans. A lot of them didn't speak English, but they're tremendous people and, and had a lot of fun where we stayed in the trailer. A lot of the labor force stayed right kind of like next door. So they would come over when we were skinning and laugh and joke. We couldn't speak. Like I remember Dave (laughs) and I, we couldn't speak Spanish. They couldn't speak English. Um, but we had a blast with those guys. It was so much fun in the evening when, uh, when they would come over. And I remember there was one kid, he was about the same age as me 
and I was flesh and beaver. And for like three hours, he stood there and we had this most amazing conversation about the animals Without by pointing and, and hand gestures and stuff. <laughs> and it was a blast. Like it looked, so that was something that was real memorable. And, and then my, the second year, Kellen is, is a little better at communicating. And, and I think he also could pick up on, on some of the Spanish words. Mm-hmm. So towards the end of our stay, the, the Mexicans had come back to work and they say she stayed in the house with us. Um, so that was, that was a fun experience of like cooking with them and stuff. Uh, those guys were a lot of fun. Yeah. So, so, uh, Mississippi in a nutshell, so in the regulations, uh, it sounds like fairly trapper friendly overall. Oh yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, it, Mississippi, if I remember right, we couldn't snare on dry land. Wait, no, 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 that's not true. Uh, that was another gray area because George Hurst basically told us we could do whatever we want. And so we did. And then after the fact, we found out, no, that's not, you can't actually do some of that stuff. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the biggest thing being three, three thirties on dry land were legal. Yeah. Um, so that made it, it gave us a little bit of advantage, uh, especially in the later years when, when I dealt with flooding and high water temperature or, high yeah. water levels yeah you know you could just move traps up uh to start with when you anticipate and, yeah. and i guess that's where i really started paying attention to weather and stuff so you, you didn't have traps basically lost right yeah for like for us we're required to set that 330 completely underwater so if it, it, if you yeah. do that during low yep. water and you get uh you know water goes up a couple feet um your your traps either out of commission or sometimes you're lucky to be able to find it Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that was a, I mean, overall, like I said, the regulations are probably pretty, pretty trapper friendly. And, and for the most part, like the, uh, people didn't care about trapping there. Like I said, they didn't, they, they wanted all the predators, all the beaver gone. So they didn't really care. The conservation officers I talked to, they wanted us to trap more places. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it was just, it, was, it seemed like it was never ending with, you know, we, we would get our otters tagged at the end of the trip and the conservation officers would say, hey, would you guys want to come back and trap, you know, five counties over? We got my family hunts to you. <laughs> and so it was just never ending. You know, that's, that's the one thing, but it just seemed like it was never ending the people yeah. that wanted that's, you to come that's awesome trap. when you can feel welcomed as a trapper you know i i talked to guys like uh i talked with ron jones in new jersey the other day and, and uh you're it's almost like there's places you just got to look over your shoulder all the time because everybody's everybody's around there walking dogs and they don't know anything about trapping and they don't if they do know anything they don't like it um and right of those areas right with po- near population centers and and uh no agriculture are can be very challenging Right, right. So, that's good. So, uh, what do you think? We got time to talk about trapping in Alabama? Yeah, I because I I guess El, the only difference in when I trapped in Alabama versus trapping in Mississippi, uh, I went down there. Jackie Malone got me pointed in a in a direction, and and he took a week off work, and we trapped together the first year, and I. I wanted a river trap, so I brought my boat down. So everything was out of the boat. Um, so it didn't catch any bobcats or coyotes. It was just all beaver, otter, or coon. And that was, 
naturally the the river fluctuates a lot there, so that was a challenge in itself. Um, but basically, very similar to Mississippi, uh, just from the the views from the river instead of above the river. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which so, so this was kind of really like a, public, kind of like public ground trapping. Your your trap. Yes, area. yes, it, it was. Uh huh. And and the one thing about it is is being in the boat is kind of gives you an advantage because you always have access for the most part. Yeah. Um, that first year the river stayed really um, really consistent. I mean we maybe went up six inches or so. I remember Jackie saying like, man, the water's actually pretty low since the last time he had been to that area. And that was the initial, uh, I had my prototype TS 85s. So it was ideal for using them. Um, caught a lot of beaver. Uh, Jackie really educated me on coon every time we, and at that time the market was a little better. So the, so the Alabama coon were averaging like eight or 10 bucks and Jackie kind of joked, um, the license in Alabama is $500 for a non-resident, but he's like, you catch, you catch $500 worth of coon. And so every time I'd stop the boat, I'd set a 330. Jackie had taken 11 squirt fish oil on a, on a bush and set an 11 there. And then, and he did that like basically everywhere we'd get out he'd make a coon set and that's all he would do and i was shocked he's like you you yankees make too much work out of catching raccoons and and it was just like every time you know we'd have like five or six coon a day just with that simple squirtle official on set of trap there uh so <laughs> that was that was a lot of a lot of fun like to say uh the only difference was being in the boat versus working out of a truck being out of out of the boat i would say was a little more comfortable because i didn't have to worry about getting the truck stuck in the mud like i did in mississippi i was always on edge yeah um, because i did get stuck different times and it just ruins the day um with the boat you know access we could really move around a lot better now the second year i went to alabama it was the water came up and i actually it was about 10 days before I could go back and find all my traps. Um, and I just kind of waited it out and rode around. Jackie went back to work. He, he's the USDA beaver trapper. So I just basically rode around with Jackie until the water went down. Um, I had to have the transmission rebuilt on my truck while I was there that second nice. year. So that was one of them kind of, it was a lot of fun, but it was a disaster. Trip, for sure, <laughs> Economically, probably not very great with the, the $500 trapping license and the the rebuilt transmission exactly yeah i didn't know that one didn't work out so well um you know i i ended up i did have a you know a few a few good checks before the water came up um but yeah it was it was not near as enjoyable as the first trip down that's for sure (laughs) boy they must be have a hard time getting guys to to trap there for that that price yeah yeah well the one thing about it though too is if you wanted to trap beaver, you don't need the license. Oh, beaver, not a fur bear there. Yeah. So that would be the, the trade off. And, and honestly, like to go there and trap, you know, I would think a a lot of landowners would gladly say, yeah, I'll give you the $500 for the license. Just come and trap, which again, I was trapping all public land land. And it was funny, you know, after the fact, I, I talked to a guy, with the army corps engineers and he basically opened up a whole river system to me and said, you know, come down and trap as much as you want, you know, from, it was like 250 
river miles that he said, nobody's touching it. You know, go for it. Trap as much as you want. And it's like, I could live, I could have moved there and lived on that river and <laughs> never covered all that. You're like, it's just impossible. You so can't, was this like a, do it. a uh, area that was access was restricted to get to the um, river? It, it, it was a public river, but just nobody was trapping it. Okay, so you just and, didn't know about it, and he pointed it out to you. Yeah, yeah, it was actually one of the rivers I trapped, but just further uh, further downriver from where I was, essentially. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that was, again, like I say, kind of like Mississippi. I mean, people just welcome you. Uh, and if anybody knows what you're doing it becomes why don't you come you know can you come trap this place or trap that place you know i my hunting club there's beaver in the ditch there we'd like to get you it's just, it's just again it was kind of kind of never ending the amount of, of opportunity basically yeah how'd you get hooked up with uh, jackie um i had known jackie for a lot of years before then and he had been telling me like hey bring your big boat down i'll you know we could head down there. There's plenty of beaver to be caught. And that that's what I wanted to do. I just, I kind of wanted to trap beaver out of the boat. Uh, that was, that was like my focus for that trip, basically. And the one, one difference, surprisingly, for whatever reason, Alabama fur quality was a lot better than Mississippi. Really? And I've talked to different guys that have said that, that have trapped both states. And they always said, yeah, for whatever reason, um, the Alabama fur is just a little bit better and and it's a a lot of areas of that way like right here in in east central iowa where i live there's a river and for whatever reason the coon north of that river are a little bit better quality than the coon south of that river no it's just a weird thing but that that boundary does exist there and i I know the beaver I sold from Alabama, uh, a lot of them looked very close to the beaver I would catch here. And the climate, uh, so that the climate was, was no different than Mississippi where you trapped? No, no, same same climate, but the lay of the land was was different. And just for whatever reason, the, uh, maybe some of it's, you know, the vegetation they're eating, um, they might be getting more protein somewhere yeah. uh, or or, you know, so, some things may be a little different with the diet, but that the fur quality is just, for whatever reason, a little better. Huh. That's interesting. So mm-hmm. uh, th- you were making uh, basically 330s and caster mound sets uh, primarily? Three, uh, primarily, yep. yep. And, and a lot and caster mounds? Yeah, a lot of it, you know, we'd pull the boat over and you'd walk up a ditch and there'd be a dam or there'd be a pond and there'd be crossover trails. And uh, there was one spot, I remember we parked the boat and and we walked like half an hour. There was, we actually walked up to a levee and there was another pond, lake there. And uh, I think, I did actually make a couple of coyote sets there. And I I think uh, at that spot, the first year I caught a possum and then I ended up pulling them because it's like, I'm not going to walk all the way up here. when the boat's full of beaver and, and it was just time consuming. So, so there was, there was a few spots like that where you had lakes close to the river and there was crossover trails. Um, and then there was, uh, there was a lot, there was a lot of backwaters along the river too. So, I mean, some of the places, you know, I'd have to raise the motor up, uh, kind of high and, and just kind of wind my way around two different spots. Mm-hmm. 
And again, I guess the one thing about that, Jackie knew his way around that area. So, you know, from day one, he kind of said, you know, let's, let's ease back in here. And, you know, this is where things are. So that was, that's real helpful. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So, and uh, how about rats? Were there rats there? Um, not really. Uh, there were some, and I caught, I think, going back to Mississippi, I did have, like, that area where there was the mink behind the office. There were some muskrats there. And I think each of the years, those first few years in Mississippi, I'd catch, make 10 or 12 muskrats in the time I was there. There was never really enough muskrats to, like, say, I'm going to trap muskrats here, but we would see certain catfish ponds had some and they would show up in three thirties or, or in crossovers and stuff. Um, in Alabama that first year, I think I caught like one or two in the second year. I don't think I caught any, uh, there, there, there just wasn't, I don't remember even seeing many muskrats, but I, I know, um, by the time I started trapping Alabama, I had you started using all like Belial three thirties, uh, Magnum body grip traps are to me using a regular draw body grip versus using a magnum totally increases your catch. Um, and so my is are you are you talking using about better, like uh, extremity catches and that sort of thing? Yes, okay. yes. I've, I've once uh, in 2004 we caught an otter in a Belial 280 by the tail and one hind foot. And when I saw that, I said, you know what? <laughs> this is this is valuable. Uh, and by going to Magnum's, you know, in a regular jaw body grip, you'll have some snapped on occasion. And then if you if you had been using a Magnum, I it just, I can think of last year, I caught a raccoon by the front foot in a, in a Bridger 220. So there's a, a lot of value there. And I think, um, going to Alabama, the muskrat, I, I, I remember catching a muskrat by the tail in a bull aisle three thirty. there. I don't remember how many I caught, but it wasn't very many. Um, so I think back to, if I had been using Magnum style jaws, uh, in Mississippi, I bet I would have caught a few more muskrats in three thirties. Yeah. For guys that aren't familiar, the Magnum style jaw allows a complete closure. So there's, there's zero gap there for the animal to get, caught by a foot or a tail and slip slide right out of there um it really correct yeah a lot better so that's mm-hmm. that and, and of course a little more expensive but but uh, you think well worth well worth it right yeah yeah you make it the incidentals and the extremity catches you, you offset that price pretty quick yeah all right so uh overall uh the south great opportunity to go especially in the winter time when Northern guys' uh, seasons are closed. Uh, surprisingly, a lot of sp- species abundance. Uh, landowners who are willing to have trappers around um, doesn't sound mm-hmm. too bad. Yeah, yeah, no, not at all. <laughs> all right, well, I think that's it for Southern Trapping, unless you have any more. Yeah, this, I mean, definitely brings back a lot of memories. Uh, I. I mean, I, I think we, we touched on the, uh, the main positives and negatives for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Kyle. Um, appreciate it. And uh, maybe we can get into New Mexico next time. 
Sounds good. Maybe we can make a plan here after you hit the stop button. All right. <laughs> Thanks again. It was great. It's great having you. Yep. Thank you.